Colossians 1, 1 through 8 this morning. Let's pray. And now, Lord God, we ask that as we open the pages before us, that you would also open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have for us. We ask that you would open up the truths that you want us to learn and to apply in our own lives. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we seek to understand your word together this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you're the kind of person that keeps track of this sort of thing, this is a four-page sermon today. So when we get to page four, don't, you know, don't be all upset. It's almost done, okay? So just kind of keep track of that. I, it's interesting because I've been able to preach, uh, you know, seven, eight pages in 30 minutes, and I've been able to preach uh, three or four pages in 50 minutes. So, I'm, you know, there's hope, but I'm not sure exactly how much there. So <clears throat> uh, one of the customs of, of Christian churches in, in a lot of places in South America is that if someone comes in to visit uh, and, and, you know, they know that they're a believer, a uh, Christian, and uh, the, many times they'll say, brother, would you like to share today? Would you like to take the pulpit today? And, and, uh, and if, uh, you know, you, you come and you're ready, well, then you, you take that opportunity and you try to encourage the believers there. Um, one time when we, we were working with the, the church that our friends Woody and Sue had started, and we were there with them, and at one point, Carol and I were out of town, and Woody and Sue were back on furlough, and uh, the church kept going. Obviously, they had, we had some leaders that were in place, and, and two men came in, and um, they, they, we, our church did not ask them. They came and said, we really want to share with you a word from God. And um, our elders were really sharp, I mean sharp, sharp guys. And they said, um, well, we don't know who you are. Let's go back here and let's just talk a little bit. So two of the elders took these guys in the back and they started asking them about what, uh, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Trinity? What about God's Word? Where do you stand on God's Word? And they got about 10, 15 minutes into the thing and discovered, as they thought, that this was one of those really aggressive cults that we had in La Paz in those days that loved to go into churches and make a big fuss. And all of a sudden, the church would change to something totally different than it was. And so they, they told these gentlemen, sorry, uh, we, we sense that you are not anything but false teachers, and so you're welcome to listen, but you cannot speak. And they, of course, walked out the door at that point. Let's put the, put the map up there, if you would. We're talking about the letter to Colossae, and if you see Ephesus there, that was the central port city, big, huge area where commerce took place. Uh, all of Asia, many of those smaller towns, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, people from those places would go to Ephesus. It was the big city you would go to to get materials and the things that you needed. Uh, and so, you know, Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, planting that church. It was during that time, during those three years, that Epaphras apparently came in contact with him, sat under his ministry, and was saved. And uh, apparently spent some time with Paul because Epaphras was from Colossae, but he stayed with Paul long enough to get a foundation strong enough to go back to Colossae and start sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors. And all of a sudden, a church is born in the town of Colossae that meets in Philemon's home. That's why we read the letter of Philemon last week. It's very possible that he also started churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis because he, those three were really closely knit, close places. They were smaller towns. From Colossae to Ephesus, it was about 100 miles, so even that was close enough so that if there were some needs, 
um, they could go and talk to Paul and get his feedback. To our knowledge, Paul never visited Colossae before he wrote this letter. Okay, so he's writing to people he's never met, but who have been described and told. They told him what they were like. So, if there was a problem at any point in time in those early years, they could take that hundred-mile trip, and they did that kind of thing very easily. Then, they would go down to uh, Ephesus, talk with Paul, get some help, some encouragement, and they'd go back and teach that in the in the churches that they were working in. Now, Paul's in prison a number of years later in Rome, which is a whole lot farther away. And all of a sudden in Colossae, there was a, the, the rising of a whole different set of false teaching. Uh, some people think it's Gnosticism, but it's too early really for that to have been fully developed. It had parts of that and parts of other things, parts of uh, Judaism um, in its extremely legalistic form. And so Epaphras decides a way to solve this is for me to go see Paul. I need to talk to Paul. I need to find out from him what we can do about the situation here. And so he travels all the way to Rome, sits down with Paul, and I'm sure over a period of days they discuss and talk. The book of Colossians is the result of that visit. And for some reason Epaphras stays in uh, Rome from that point on, and the letters carried to the church in Colossae by Tychicus and Onesimus, who we met last week as Philemon's slave. So that's kind of a, a background about where we're going now. Now, the false teaching, one of the biggest things they were putting down was that Christ was supreme, um, that he was sufficient for all that you would need. And so the false teachers were going on and on about how you needed more. You needed special knowledge or you needed to have uh, some kind of special experience. And they it was really kind of a garbled kind um, just a whole bunch of things thrown together. But the biggest thing was they were putting Jesus down. He was not important. And he didn't have the power or the ability to handle the situations in life. He needed these other things. And so that's the kind of teaching that he is uh, going to be um, uh, basically attacking and saying this, isn't, this is not the truth. This is the truth. Now, if you are, if you've gotten that little booklet that's uh, in the back of, Bible study in Colossians, right in the very beginning, there is a summary page of the heresy in Colossae. If you want to take a look at that, uh, take that book home with you. You can go ahead and and study that. But here we go. We're going to start out with verse 1 and 2 from uh, Colossians. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Very simple introductory. Some of the other letters that Paul does are much more lengthy. This is a very simple one. Hey, this is Paul. I'm an apostle. By the way, I didn't make myself an apostle. The God, the Spirit, singled singled me out for that, and I am an apostle by the will of God. He saved me, and He prepared me, and He has sent me out. I've been commissioned. And so on one level, Paul is saying, you need to know that when I speak of things as, and I have apostolic authority, it isn't something I dreamed up. It isn't something that I brought to bear. I was made an apostle by God Himself. He's the one that called me, gifted me, prepared me, and commissioned me. Okay, so that's what Paul is saying very, very clearly. Remember, he's never been there, but he, he knows Epaphras fairly well. And Epaphras has told him what's going on. So he's writing those things. And this is the starting point. You all need to know, whatever the false teachers are saying, remember who I am. 
Remember the gifting and the calling that I have. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Timothy's here too. He says, and he says, it's me. I'm writing to you, the holy faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And <clears throat> I'm loving the fact that Paul at this point says, um, you are in Christ there at Colossae, and because you are separated for God, you are holy um, and separated unto Him, you are faithful in the sense that you're steadfast to the gospel. And then he says, you are brothers in Christ, the one spiritual family that they are part of. And, and they're a part of this family along with all of the churches and all the believers everywhere. He says, you're a part of this family. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what economic position you have. If you are in Christ, you're one with the body. You are one with the body. And he goes on to say, grace and peace be yours from God our Father. <clears throat> and it's interesting, um, several people as I was studying made the point that isn't it interesting and good, if you will, that he starts out with grace and then says peace. The reason for that is if he, sa- if he, had, if he had now started with grace, that's what the peace comes from, is, is the grace of God. The grace of God is what calls us and gives us the opportunity to come to Christ. And so the grace has to be there before we can have the peace with God that we long to have. And this quote I came across really, I think, says this, says this well. McDonald says, If God had not first acted in love and mercy, or grace, if you will, towards us, He would still be in, we would still be in our sins. Isn't that amazing? If God had not acted first, we would still be in our sins, but because He took the initiative and sent His Son to die for us, we can now have peace with God, peace with man, and the peace of God in our souls. And that's just a really good statement of the fact that it was God's idea. Grace comes from God. He's the one that planned all this stuff out, and so He's the one that, showing His grace and His mercy, sent Jesus. And there's an implication here for us. Um, verse 2, Paul says, We are writing to God's holy people, or to the saints, if you will, in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God, our Father, give you grace and peace. Now, various translations do this differently. Um, and, and some of them will say, they all say in Christ, but some of them will say at Colossae. Uh, if you go back and take a look at it, you'll discover that... Uh, and let's go ahead to the next one, if you would, Tim. To the saints in Christ at Colossae is the way a lot of them translate it, but the word at is the same word as the word in. So you could actually have said to the saints in Christ in Colossae, which is what the verse in the New Living puts it. Um, the, the first in is about geography. Those of you who are in Colossae, that's where you live, that's where you are from... And so that's one thing they says. Those of you who are in Colossae, and then he moves on to say, you are also brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's a whole different statement, isn't it? You're in Colossae, yes, that's where you live. But you're in Christ, that's because you have been changed dramatically by the grace of God, and He is in you, and you are in Him. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> matter of fact, let's go ahead and put that picture up there. I came across this this week. I was trying to think about, you know, I, I, all of my life, from, from a very young age, you know, I've 
was taught that Christ is in me. You know, when I believe that Jesus died for me and my sins were forgiven, He took up residence in my heart. Um, but how was I in Christ? I tried to figure that out. What does that mean? I know mystically I'm seated with Him in the head, and I knew all the verses in the theology, but nothing put it in place for me. Now, this week I came across this illustration. And again, it's just an illustration, but I found it helpful. Um, we are the bucket. And when we become a Christian, we are filled with Christ. And so the bucket is filled. Now, how are we, the bucket, going to be in Christ? Well, that's when you take the full bucket and you put it into the vast, unfathomable, never-ending ocean that is Jesus Christ. And I saw that and I thought, huh, I never thought of it that way. And to me, it was the first time that it made at least some kind of visual sense. Now, I understand that it isn't about buckets and oceans, but the reality is we are, Christ is in us and we are in Him. And that's just one, one way of looking at that and, and seeing that. Romans 8, 1 and 3, Paul wrote to the Church of Rome and he says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you have that same statement all the way through the New Testament. You'll find different people saying, mostly Paul, hey, you, you know, when you become a Christian, you are in Christ. And then he goes on to say, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So when I came to faith in Christ and He took up residence in me, I'm no longer bound by any of the sin or any of those things that tied me down in the past. The Spirit of God has set me free from the law of sin and death. I'm in Christ, and I will not have to die for my sins. That's been taken care of. Verse 3, he goes on to say, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did. You know, the law was there to make people realize we need God, we can't do this on our own. That's one of the big reasons for the law. Um, and, and, and the law was powerless, it says in verse 3, to what it was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nation, nature, nature, excuse me, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. The very last perfect lamb, the very last uh, sacrifice of atonement that ever had to be made was the death of Jesus Christ. So what was it that the Old Testament law could not do? It couldn't save anyone. It made you cry out to God because it was only by faith in God that you had that opportunity to be saved. And so God did send His own Son to be a sin offering for us. That's why we can say Christ is in us. And we are in Christ. Now, in Ephesians, it, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus paid that price, the perfect Lamb of God. He died on the cross as a sin offering for you and for me. And, and how is it that Christ becomes in us? And how does that happen? And, and it happens for everybody in the exact same way. At the foot of the cross, we see our Savior dying, and it can just be in our mind's eye or the words that we've read on the page. And, and we say, help, <laughs> please forgive me. I'm a sinner, and, and I'm lost without you. And we ask the Lord to make us His child. And, and, and the, the words aren't anywhere near as important as the heart saying to God, I need a Savior. I believe you died for me. And when that happens, 
Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. Now, we're not seeing buckets being lowered into oceans, and we're not seeing any of these other kinds of things, but that's the reality of what has happened theologically and practically in our lives when we accept Christ and when we believe in Him. Ephesians 4, 6, we want to see that the whole idea of Christ being in us is also the Father and also the Spirit. Ephesians <clears throat> Four six is that God the Father is over all and in all. And then if you look at Colossians 1.27, we'll be seeing that in a few weeks. God chose to make known this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then, of course, we saw just a few minutes ago the whole idea of in Christ that Paul is writing about. Now, 1 Corinthians 6.19 is, is another challenge in this whole thing. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So you've got the Father, you've got the Son, and the Spirit all indwelling us. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. This is the part we forget sometimes. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. We were bought and paid for, folks, by the death of Jesus Christ. And so we were bought at a price. And our desire should be to live our lives to honor Him, whatever that, whatever that it takes, whatever that looks like that the Lord is leading us to do. So our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, of God, Christ the Son, all. And, and in that sense, we can always say, okay, I am in Christ and Christ is in me, or the Holy Spirit is in me. However you want to look at that of the triune God. But the bottom line is, because He is in us, and we are in Him, we are not our own. We are not free agents that can sign anywhere we want to for more money. That's not... There's no free agency. We belong to Jesus Christ. So that was a challenge as I was just looking at all of that. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in us, and that reminder is clear. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. And as believers, we can honestly say then, we have been bought and paid for, and the price was the death of Christ. Our response to His death for us should be to live a life of honor. Bill McDonald said this, the expression in Christ conveys more of intimacy, acceptance, and security than any human mind can fully understand. Did you get that? When we begin to realize that we are in Christ, what that means is a level of intimacy, a level of acceptance, and a level of security that we can't even comprehend. It's all part of having the God of the universe live in us and us in Him. And it's really hard for us to grab a hold of that and understand it fully, but the reality is, is taught all through the New Testament. The believers are in Christ, and Christ is in us. So let us live that truth out that Christ is in us, uh, so that no matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter what we say, no matter what our attitude is, we have a constant thought in our minds, Christ is in me, and I am in Him, and I want to honor Him. Let's move on to the last few verses here, verses 3 through 8. 
Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Uh, and it's interesting because Paul, like I said, had never met any of these people other than Epaphras and, and Philemon probably. But he's praying for them because he's heard about them and he knows that there, there are these three little churches up there um, that, are, that are growing, probably all of them under the care of Epaphras. Um, and so he says, you know, when we pray, we pray for you and we thank God when we pray for you. We are thankful when we pray for God because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. What an amazing thing to be known for. Paul is praying for people he's never met before, but what has he heard about them? They have a faith in Jesus Christ that's real, and they have a desire to show the love of Christ to everyone. They love people deeply. So they have... we. He says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. What an amazing thing to be known for, right? And then we always thank God. Paul's overflowing with thankfulness for the Colossians. And, and we see that theme. We'll see it all the way through the book of Colossians, how his thankfulness just keeps overflowing. And he's thankful for who they are and what they've done. And, and this is the interesting thing. Paul is in prison. And he may have been there for two or three years already. Uh, we think three years was the max, and yet he's still there right now. And in the midst of all that, what's he doing? Praising God for the Colossians. Yeah, I'm chained to a soldier. Yeah, who cares? Praise God for the Colossians. And I'm thankful to God for you. And, and, and let, me, let me share some thoughts with you about the situation that you're in. And, and he begins to dictate the letter to the Colossians. Verse 5, he goes on, The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So verse 4, we have heard about your faith in Jesus Christ and, and the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So faith and love, again, the result of that hope that they had. What was the hope about? It was hope in the promises of God. Hope in the fact that when, when He said, I will come back, that He was going to come back. Or when He said, you will be with me, that that would happen at the end of their lives. And so they had this, this hope in the promises of God. And that led them to live lives of faith in Jesus Christ and love to their brothers and sisters. And, and, and this hope is not just that, well, I'm desperately hoping it's true. No, this is the kind of hope that's confident expectation, and it's not just wishful thinking. They are believing and knowing in the depth of their hearts that this is going to happen. And so he says, your faith and love, they spring from that hope that you have in, in God and all the things that he's got stored up for you. Um, <clears throat> now, again, then he says... The, um, you've heard all these things through the word of truth, the gospel. Now stop and think. We've got a bunch of false teachers out there right now who are saying some things that are way far away from what the word of God is. And on one level, Paul's already starting to say, listen, this is something you need to take into account. The word of truth is the gospel. It's not the stuff over here where you have to jump into asceticism and live an austere life in order to win God's favor. It's not the mysticism over here that says, well, you know, you have to have some kind of a special sense with, you know, spirits or whatever. It's none of that. The word of truth is the gospel. And they have been taught that. And they are being reminded that by the Apostle Paul as he comes along and says, hey, guys, I know that there's some people out there saying different things, but you need to know you have the truth. 
And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't twist it. Don't distort it. Don't add to it or take away from it. That's the truth. He goes on in verse 6, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. And I love this verse. This is one of those verses that's very so far beyond just Colossae that we have to stop and think about it. What is he, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you know, 30 years after Christ ascended into heaven, this gospel is going over everywhere. I mean, it's expanding all over the place. And, and the gospel <clears throat> is bearing fruit and growing, just like it did among you guys, Paul says. Epaphras brought you this message, and you accepted it, you received it, and there's been growth ever since. I love the fact that he says the, the gospel has been growing among you, and I love the fact that it's because you understood the grace of God. All of that's there, and God's grace in all of its truth. Again, there we go. with the, 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 Here's the truth. Anything beyond that is not. God's grace in all of its truth, and he's contrasting the grace of God and the truth of the gospel against the false teaching that they've been hearing. And contrasting those things. Grace is what God offers, forgiveness and relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the false teachers were all about rituals and rules and demands for ecstatic experiences. And Paul says, go back to the gospel. Go back to the truth of the gospel. And that's been 30 years since the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And the gospel had indeed spread. To our knowledge, Jerusalem, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, parts of Egypt and North Africa, and even Persia had already been visited and had been establishing Christians in, in communities of Christians, uh, churches. And so that, that's, you know, when he says the, this gospel is bearing fruit everywhere, he, he's right. Everywhere it went, it, it grew. Even when it was persecuted, it grew. You learned it from Epaphras, and so again, he's, he's giving Epaphras their, their shepherd, their pastor credit. He says, he's the one that brought you the gospel. You learned it from Epaphras. Our dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so on one level what he's saying here is you guys heard this stuff from Epaphras and he was absolutely 100% spot on. So he's reminding them who brought them the gospel and reminding them that it is the gospel that matters, the truth of the gospel, not the stuff they're starting to hear on the, on the edges by people who are trying to change or trying to take over. And so he says, you learned it, the gospel from Epaphras. He's the one that brought it to you. That's how you were saved. That's how you were born again when you believed in Jesus. And he's been faithful in ministering to you. And so that's, that's, we're going to just stop at that point there and we'll pick up there next week. But there's some implications here. Verse 6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you first heard it. So he said, all over, everywhere, it's growing. The next one is in the New Living Translation. This same good news or gospel that came to you is growing, is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere. How? By changing lives. The gospel changes lives. Now, it's interesting when you think about that. I was um, 
thinking through some things when it came to that kind of a statement that he's making. The gospel of river goes, changes lives. But Paul could write that, and he could write it from personal experience, couldn't he? His name used to be Saul. And Saul was a persecutor and a violent man. He says that about himself. And he said, and this is the guy who was the legal witness as they stoned Stephen to death. And then he took over from there and he went out and grabbed people and put them in prison. And there were people who died as a result of the things that Paul did. Believers who died. And then he meets Jesus Christ and everything's different. I mean, the change is so radical, so complete. And the resurrected Christ trains him, equips him, gives him what he needs to know, shows him how the Old Testament and all his knowledge from there fits into this new gospel, this, this pattern that God had planned on all along. And Paul leaves and goes out into ministry. And verse 6 again, all over the world the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Why? Because that's what it's supposed to do. God said go, and when people did, that's what happened. Let me give you another example. After World War II finally ended, um, there was a whole lot of hatred of the Japanese, especially in Korea, because there were some horrendous things that were done to the people of Korea by the Japanese soldiers. It was something that went very, very deep into the psyche of the Koreans and into the culture, even. Um, it's interesting because years later, um, Carol and I ended up at a church in Colorado Springs, which is a huge military area. And a lot of guys who serve there in either the Air Force or the Army eventually come back and retire there. They, they love being there. So our church was full of um, active duty, but also many retired uh, airmen and soldiers. <clears throat> and there was a whole lot of men who had married Korean wives and married Japanese wives. And so now you've got a church that's full of people who, in their own cultures, would be livid with hatred. And someone was sharing with us, they said, <clears throat> See, it was like at a potluck, and the ladies were all preparing something. They said, you know, you would never have seen that if it wasn't for the grace of Christ. <clears throat> These women and their husbands attended the church or were part of the church family, and it didn't matter if you were Korean or Japanese. The gospel changes lives. This is a statement in uh, verse 6. The same good news came to you all over the world, bearing fruit uh, by changing lives. And so the statement that I, that I thought through as, as a result of this is the fruit of the gospel is changed lives. The fruit of the gospel is changed lives. Now, we had a friend of ours in, in Bolivia who was saved at a Luis Palau crusade in La Paz. And uh, after that, he was part of the church plant that Woody and Sue Rowland did. But it's interesting because in the first few years of his life as a believer, he still lived at home. He was a school teacher, but, uh, you know, wasn't able to really go out and live on his own. So the family had kind of this big, huge place that they kept adding on to. And uh, we got to know his family fairly well. And his mother was a very strong Roman Catholic, and she didn't want to have anything to do with evangelicals or people being saved and changing, she thought, changing religion is what they were doing. But after a while, she said, you know what, I don't want to do what he's doing, but this has been really good for my son. He's changed. Why? The gospel changes lives. So may we, all of us, 
ask God to continue doing in us what He wants done so that we can be that kind of an instrument as well, that our changed lives are visible. What's the takeaway? Well, I'm going to go back to verse 3 where Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God. Why? Verse 4, Because we've heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all God's people. If you plant seeds of corn or wheat in the ground and, and the normal process happens with, with rain and sunlight, eventually these things start to grow. And, and there's a harvest. The same thing is, should be happening with the gospel. The gospel is sowing the seed and that seed should be growing and, and eventually harvested. And the people of Colossae had already seen that harvest among themselves. And they saw the reality of it. And it's interesting because the false teachers were saying, well, you know what, there's a whole lot more that you have to do. I mean, you know, just just believing the gospel, that's not enough. Well, you need to do this, or you need to do this, or you need to seek after the secret knowledge that I've got here for you to, for you to learn. And Paul made it very clear. The gospel changes hearts and lives. It's not some extra special experience or some extra thing that you have to do. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. And you don't have to add anything to it. You don't take away anything from it. And so Paul is full of thanksgiving because the people of Colossae had been changed. And you could see it in their faith and their love. And so as I was thinking that through as a church family, uh, wouldn't it be cool if we could say about us, hey... God has changed us so much that our faith for, for Christ is visible and our love for each other and others is also visible. I think about that personally. I wonder how many people would say, yeah, I see Mark's faith and I see his love for people. That should be, should be my desire, my prayer, but it should be all of ours. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for all God's people is what they were known for. And so may the Lord help us to live and mature and spiritually move forward in our walk with Him so that we can be known as people, individually and corporately, who have faith in Jesus Christ and love for God's people. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for Your Word and thank You that it is so powerful that it touches our hearts and reaches down into our lives. And Lord, as we read these verses, <clears throat> we thank You. We thank You that the Gospel changes lives. And Lord, I pray for each one of us here today, if there's something going on that You're trying to work on in our lives and our hearts, that, you would, that we would listen to Your voice and that we would do the things that You're moving to have done in our lives. Help us, Lord God, to, to trust You and help us to be able to reach out to others in honest and sincere love. For we ask this in Your name. Amen.